0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 36 of Off The Block Swimming Podcast. Thank you all very much for downloading our show today, wherever you are in the world right now listening. I'm your host, Robbie Cox. Now, The 20-year anniversary of the Sydney 2000 Olympics continues today with our very special guest. But before we get to her, here are some special facts about this day 20 years ago. And in the pool, the finals of the men's 100 breaststroke and 400 IM were decided with US legend Tom Dolan grabbing the biscuits in the IM. And in the women's, the 400 freestyle was decided with American Brooke Bennett claiming gold. And in the 100 fly, one of the greatest athletes our sport has ever seen in Inga De Bruin won with a world record and cemented her place in Olympic history. Also on this day 20 years ago, our very special guest today was swimming her heat and semi-final in the women's 100 metre breaststroke. She was defending champion from Atlanta. She is a South African powerhouse that needs no introduction and needs no goggles. She is Penny Haynes. I caught up with Penny via Zoom a few weeks ago to discuss her remarkable career growing up without the Olympics being an option until 1990 when all that changed and South African government decided to allow their athletes once again to compete at the Olympic Games, thus allowing Penny's dream to become a reality and what a career she went on to have. Fourteen world records, three-time Olympian, three-time Olympic medalist, including the two gold medals from Atlanta where she dominated. So sit back and prepare to be inspired by a woman who is widely regarded as one of the greatest breaststrokers of all time. As Ep 36 with the amazing Penny Haynes. Starts now. Away they go. No problems with the start. There is two
1: 100s in the second
0: in it. Gary Hall Jr., the extrovert,
1: and Ian Thorpe battling it out down the pool. Thorpe is starting to go away from him. Oh, he's
0: blowing him away now. Thorpe's gone more than a -A 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 meter on Vander Nook in hand. But the sinister of all eyes is the great battle butterfly, Susie O'Neill. He's coming back. Oh, he surely can't do it to him again. Chevish in the right hands, Milton in the black hats, and Milton's bullets. I cannot believe
1: he's done that.
0: Joining me today all the way from South Africa is without a doubt a legend of our great sport. She's a three-time Olympian, three-time Olympic medalist, two of which were gold from Atlanta in 1996. She's broken 14 world records in her illustrious career. Yes, that's right. I said 14, a massive number. And she's widely regarded as one of the greatest breaststrokers of all time, not just women's breaststrokers, but breaststrokers of all time. And it is my honor and privilege to welcome to Off The Block Swimming Podcast to Penny Haynes. Penny, how are you?
2: I'm good, thanks. Thanks, Robbie, for inviting me.
0: Not a trouble at all. I'm, I'm just, I'm very thankful. Um, we talked about it earlier, but I do want to let people know that I stuffed up my time zones and I was supposed to talk to you probably about six hours ago, but I messed it all up and I'm very grateful that you were able to still reschedule your day and, and fit me in. So thank you very much. No problem. Now I know it's, what's it about lunchtime over there?
2: Yeah. It's about midday. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No. So what have you been up to already today? What have you got achieved? I Uh, know you're someone who looks like they're achieving stuff every day.
2: You don't want to know the unusual. Um, (laughs) I live on a farm and one of the ponies have some kind of abscess growth happening in the mouth. And, uh, the vet was supposed to only arrive later on at three. And then she let me know just a while ago, she's at the gate. She's here. So I was running between that and trying to get back for the interview because, you know, just to kind of find out what exactly is going on in this, in this pony's mouth. Um, so it doesn't seem too serious, but that's what that's like the most recent thing I was up to.
0: Have you always lived on the farm?
2: No, no, I moved here. I had an opportunity to buy some shares in the farm. Um, about, I think 2013. So since then I've been on the farm, yeah.
0: And you enjoy it, this, the sort of getting away and being able to live on, the, do you live sort of off the land in terms of, you know, the chickens give you the eggs, the, the cows give you the milk, how sort of farming are you?
2: No, no, not quite. We do have cattle. Um, it's not so much, you know, I obviously benefit out of it, but it's the other partners in, in this venture that are taking care of the farming side. So there's some cattle, there's, um, we are growing our own vegetables Mm -hmm. and there's uh, the one guy has a wholesale nursery. Um, And then there are some plans, you won't believe it, to, they've begun farming with uh, snails, which is escargot. Um, So yeah, some interesting things. And there are some plans going forward. Uh, I'm, I travel so much, I, I always joke and say, I just come here and do my laundry and then I go again. <laughs> but it's really great to be here. It's, it's a lot of, it is um push felt kind of terrain.
1: Yeah. So
2: long term, the idea is also to get some game in. There's a lot of roaming game uh, mm-hmm. between the farms but i can 't claim that it 's my own game <laughs> well,
0: it is a lot of hard work living on a farm. I know my, my wife 's family actually live on a farm um, down down in, um, in just near Canberra in, in, uh, in New South Wales sorry and um, yes yeah, it's, it's up in the morning, making sure every, all the animals are fed and all the animals are in it and it's like a, it's a full time gig it 's actually hard to get out of the house and go do anything else because other than doing that and doing your work that's pretty much it right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, fortunately there's some staff that's been here for like with a previous owner for like 30 years. So they know the drill. And, um, obviously when I am in South Africa, I can work from home. So that's great. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, mate, I want to check in with you as well, because obviously the pandemic's happened and, and this is the first yeah. time I've spoken to anyone that's, that's in South Africa. Usually I'm talking to Uh, kiwis or or swimmers from from england outside of australia but how have you guys been affected over there and personally have you have you been affected
2: i think personally not so much in terms of uh, the stresses that would be associated with being in lockdown i mean being locked down on a farm is not it's not so bad you know yeah um as far as business goes a lot of work with you know let's say on the books this year entailed a lot of travel so that obviously was shut down and postponed until we can one day get on an airplane again Mm. Um, so a lot of the swim clinics had to be uh, delayed a lot of on weekends i do a lot of stroke correction um, coaching so Mm. that was obviously not happening for a long time fortunately the other things that we do i could do over online coaching and you know that kind of stuff so webinars i think what's happened i think for many people is is that we've been forced into using the internet and sort of catching up with the times. Mm-hmm. So it's been an interesting journey. There's been some surprises along the way. Um, I was surprised at how the opportunities came with regards to doing talks, uh, virtual corporate talks, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it seems like they just, they're happy to remunerate in the same way they would if you were traveling for two days. So yeah. that that was a bonus. Yeah.
0: Well, where have we been without Zoom? That's what I want to know because I, there's no way I would be talking to you right now if the pandemic hadn't happened and I'd worked out that, you Definitely. know, I, sure I can, you know, um, zoom in with Penny Haines in South Africa. There's no way I would have even considered that before. So it's funny, hey, that, you know, we, we adapt yeah. and we move on.
2: Yeah, no, it's been great. It certainly changed things in the way we'll do things going forward, right?
0: Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. Well, even as a, as a coach, you know, and, and you be doing it as well with those sort of one-on-ones and stuff like that, you can still have your one-on-one maybe meetings. So normally on, on pool deck, you know, once I'm finished at seven, those are the times where you'd catch up with parents and swimmers, but that also yeah. takes time away from your, your family and things like that where now I can kind of go, all right, well, we'll zoom in on Friday afternoon and I don't have to be at the yeah. pool and they don't have to be at the pool. Correct. Um, I'm interested yeah. with you guys in terms of the legends and, and how you would have gone if you were still swimming right now with the Olympics being postponed. So obviously we knew the Olympics had to be postponed. Uh, it was just the best for all the athletes because it was just the most fairest thing probably across the board. How would you have gone if you yeah. were still swimming though? Was, was that something do you think you'd take easily on your on, just in your stride or do you reckon you would have struggled a little bit? I
2: think it would depend on what phase of my career I was in you know if it had been pre-Atlanta I think I would have been fine um in hindsight possibly an additional year or a delay um for Sydney might have been a blessing in disguise it would have given me some time to to kind of catch up again what I lost uh wasn't the best year for me yeah um but I think I think when you're a top athlete and you're at your prime in other words you've really uh prepared well um, I think you can handle it. I think when, when you're uncertain and you feel like, especially those also on the brink of retirement and they feel like they're almost in a hurry to get it done, I think that would be a difficult adjustment. But certainly, I think for some, it's been a blessing in disguise. And for others, I, I was doing an interview and they were referring to Alison Felix and saying, that this, you know, she's really getting older and this may really put a, a, a spanner in the works for her. So I do understand that as well. I think it just depends on, on the individual
0: hundred percent. That's pretty much the answer I've gotten when I've asked even the athletes at the moment on, you know, how they've dealt with it. There's some that were injured. So they were kind of like, this is not great in terms of what's going on in the world, but for them, it was a silver lining that they've got time to, you know, get themselves healthy and fit again, and then get ready. And there's also ones that were ready to go into, you know, full-time work or looking at business opportunities or starting a family, things like that. So, yeah, yeah. I think you're, you're spot on there with just how varied it is. It depends on where you There's definitely some 17-year-olds out there licking their lips right now going, I've got another year to get ready. I could actually now make an Olympics where maybe this year it wasn't an option.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think, um, I think there'll be a lot of that. I think the results we may have seen this year is that there's a chance they would totally... different next year now given circumstances Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of the younger ones coming up and you know dethroning the champions of
0: today. I'm actually right there with you. I, I think there's going to be some spanner in the works next year and people just popping out of nowhere that no one saw coming. And and it's exciting. It adds yeah. another element to, to 2021, which is already going to be, you know, we've had to wait an extra year for it. So we're already excited. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to throw in a, another spanner in the works. Now, I think it's time, mate, we get stuck into your career because I know we're not time poor, but we're certainly, I could okay. speak all day about your swimming career. So we've definitely got to get started. Before we get into, you know, starting in the pool, I can't start without asking the swimming with no goggles. Where where did that come from? How did it start? Because as a, as a teenager in Australia, when I watched you race, I was like, how is she not wearing goggles? Where where is she not wearing goggles? And now as a coach, this, my swimmers can't even do a lap without, if their goggles fall down without stopping and having to fix them up or retie them. Where did that come from? And how did you, how are we able to then compete at the highest level?
2: Um, it's actually funny if I may just quickly say I was, I was doing some medal presentations at the Africa championships. And before I was handing out the medals, they showed a short clip of my swimming. And when it was done, the girl who was getting, receiving the gold medal said to me, you know, did you not have goggles in your day? (laughs) So I'm so old. (laughs) I was like, okay. Um, no, what happened is I just, I was never comfortable diving with goggles. So I felt like I don't want to go into a race wondering or worrying about what may happen. You know, I wanted to eliminate everything I felt I didn't have control over. So for me, because it was breaststroke, it was not an issue. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't anyway want to see what was going on around me. So not having goggles on in a way also helped me to focus more. Um, you'll note I never really swam the sprint freestyle because that, that tumble turn was coming up too fast. and now and then i did the ims but my backstroke's just absolutely horrific so um, when it came to swimming at the highest level it was only breaststroke and it wasn't it wasn't an issue
0: how'd your eyes go though did you have any issues with the chlor because depending on what pool you're in the chlorine can be quite high and dries it out and did you ever have any issues with it though
2: it was It was only racing, right, so in training, I was wearing goggles. Okay. It was only when I had to go from a dive if it was a time trial or racing that I'd take the goggles off so you're correct if it if it was a seawater pool, which is fortunately not really legal, um, it would be difficult. There were some times where when in South Africa, you know the big well the only decent racing pool we have in Durban was being um There was some work being done on it. So we were forced to compete at an age group level at one of the pools that's sort of right on the beach and it's seawater. So there it was the problem, but fortunately it didn't last too long.
0: Oh, that's not too bad. There you go. Well, I've learned something there because I would just would have thought just based off watching you compete, I just thought, well, she doesn't wear goggles. She's never wearing goggles, but there you go. In training, you you had them on. In training. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get back to the beginning where it all started for you. How did you get started in swimming and, and what drew you towards the water?
2: I grew up along the coast, so as such, you'll know, everybody goes to the beach and you learn to swim at a very young age, so it was, I think, around the age, so I learned to swim, I can't even remember, remember, probably at the age of one and a half, two, my mom taught myself and my two younger brothers, and um, it was around the age of seven, I was actually next door at the neighbor's house and I was racing their son, he was two years older than me, and I beat him. So um, the lady said to my mom, your daughter has talent. You should probably let her swim. And so I think it was already in my mom's mind anyway. But so I challenged the school team. I was too young, but they put me in the team anyway because I won the race. And it was only at the age of 12, though, that I joined a club. Um, What drew me to swimming, it's certainly not the idea that I would go to the Olympics someday because, as you recall, South Africa, you know, there were sanctions against us. So Mm -hmm. for 32 years, we couldn't go to the Olympics. I had no such dream. Um, and it wasn't that I necessarily loved swimming all the time. Uh, there are some swimmers out there who say they can't live without the water. They absolutely love it. That wasn't me. I enjoyed it at times, but I also hated it a lot, quite often. Um, so for me, at the age of seven, um, to be to tell you the truth, what happened is I actually attended a Sunday school class and they were talking about a parable, which is a story where the master gives five talents to the one, two to the other, and one to the third server. Now, talents being like dollars, et cetera. But the word talent stuck in my mind.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And as the story goes, he says, go and use these talents. And the guy with the five doubles it, the guy with the two doubles it, and the guy with the one does nothing. And so after some time, the master comes, he rewards the guy with 10, with four, and then he reprimands the guy that hid the talent and did nothing with it. And so from that young age, I felt like someday I'm going to stand before my maker and I don't want to hear why did you not use the talent I gave you? Mm. And so that was the golden thread throughout my career. It always came down to the question, can I honestly say I've done the best I can with the talent I was given? And if I was not sure I'd done that, despite how I felt, I had to continue swimming. And, you know, there were several occasions in my career, one of them being at the Barcelona Olympics. So I, I felt like I swam terribly, hated swimming in that moment, but had an opportunity to go to the US. And if I didn't take it, could I honestly say I've done the best with my talent and my opportunities? Mm. And then in 98, again, after Atlanta, I, I was swimming poorly and I hated swimming. And same thing, prayed about and felt like if I don't go to Canada, I won't be able to say I've done the best I could with my talent, you know, and. There's a lot of lessons in all of that, but post all of those dips in my career, there always came some real breakthrough. And I mean, in 99, I had that huge season of 11 world records. So certainly if I didn't have that golden thread keeping me in the water, despite how I felt at times, then I wouldn't have seen half the career that I was very blessed to have had.
0: Mm. That's a fantastic takeaway, Patty. I couldn't have... Um, ask for a a better, uh, you know, story there. I think people, anyone listening to that should be listening very closely and intently in terms of just, if you've got something there in terms of a talent, um, you know, you've got to look at yourself in the mirror and say, have I done my best? And as you said, you'd always do that no matter if it was a good day or a bad day. So uh, love it. Thank you very much for for sharing that story.
2: And I think for your listeners, especially the younger swimmers, it's important that you have that. Deeper reason keeping you going. Because in the tough times, if you don't have that, if it's only because you want to achieve some kind of time or position or medals or fame, in the tough times you'll be inclined to give up. The the other side of all of that is if if your driving force is wanting to know at the end of your career that you've done the absolute best you could with the talent you were given, you'd also be less inclined to to be tempted to cross that line and cheat because then Mm. obviously that wouldn't be you doing the best with your talent. So I really think when, when we, as a coach for you as well, when you work with younger swimmers, it's so important to instill the right values in them and, and force them in a way through asking the right questions, but guide them into answering the question as to why Are you really doing this? Because as you'll know, a lot of swimmers, unfortunately, they may be extremely talented, but they're also not doing it for the right reasons. They're doing it because mom and dad live Mm -hmm. vicariously through them and they wish they had been a certain level swimmer, you know?
0: It is very funny you say that. I don't like to, because you're telling way better stories than I'm going to ever tell. But I do make sure I make a point as a coach at times that I will stand at the front door when the kids walk in, especially the older Mm -hmm. athletes. And I'll say, why are you here today? And if they don't have the right answer, they've got to go back out and and come back in and rethink about it. Because quite often, as you know, as you said, it's, you know, oh, mum said I have to today or you told me today's one of my sessions or no, that's not the real reason you're here. Why are you here today? As coaches, we talk about that ourselves. If we don't know why we're going to work, what are we doing?
2: Exactly. So I might just borrow that from you.
0: And tomorrow for it. When, I
2: do, when I do some sessions, I'm going to ask them, why are they there?
0: Mate, I would be honored. I would be honored.
2: And the, and the answer would be, my mom made me.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's mostly what I get, mate. Don't you worry. Mom told me I had to get up today. Um, did yeah, you play yeah. any other sports growing up, Penny?
2: I did. I was, uh, I did track and field um, at a junior school level, everything. But then at high school, I focused more on high jump and um, the discus. hmm I, again, growing up along the coast, I was a uh, nipper. I think in Australia, you guys also call it nippers yeah, and yeah. Then junior life savings. So I did all of that. And um, despite the fact that the beach where I grew up has the highest record of shark attacks mm-hmm. in such close proximity. Um, so obviously, as I grew older and I got to know those statistics, I was a little bit more hesitant to actually mm-hmm. go in the water. Um, I did. I played hockey for a time, but you know, as I got more serious about swimming, the coach convinced me that there's more opportunity for or chance that I would get injured in hockey, so I laid off that. But um, never, never sorry for having done that because I am definitely more of an individualist, and uh, being playing in a team would have been frustrating. I think
0: it's funny you mentioned the great whites because obviously, and I'm a great. I I actually am different to a lot of people. I love sharks, and I, I have a great appreciation for great whites and the power and the speed and all that stuff. Do you, did you, have you ever swum with them over there? Cause I know you can get in the cage and swim or are you one of those people like, no way I'm not getting in.
2: No way. If I have swum <laughs> with them, it's unbeknown to me. Um, you know, when I was very young, that same beach has a pool that kind of goes out into the rocks, a, mm-hmm. a proper pool, not a rock pool. So it's a yep. 33 and a third meter pool. And my mom used to go and have a swim there in the morning. And I think I was about the age of five. And as, she, as the story goes, she was at the beach at early the morning and it was springtide and it looked beautiful and there were two guys further in the water. And she thought, well, she'll go for a dip in the ocean instead of the pool. And she wasn't even waist deep when she was knocked off her feet. She saw a shadow. She looked up to see if there's clouds. It there wasn't anything. Then she saw the fin. And she just began swimming, fortunately, in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And what had happened is that she was bumped by the shark. They say that that's a taste, you know. Yeah. It bumps you and you begin to bleed and then it would turn around. Um, so she was tasted. And I think that story also kind of stuck in my mind. So, no, my, my youngest brother is an avid diver. And, you know, he's often diving with the sharks mm. and he has no issue, but not for me.
0: Uh, don't blame me if I heard that story from my mom, I wouldn't be getting in either. So, uh, yeah, that's yeah. enough to scare me back out. I think probably I have a great appreciation because I've never actually come in, I've swum with sharks, but not great white sharks. So, I think there's just yeah. A, yeah. a difference there. Now, I'm interested, mate, growing up in South Africa during the apartheid, um, was you know, did that how did you see that time as you were growing up? Did that affect? You're swimming in any way. Obviously, we know from 1960 until 1992, and we'll get to to Barcelona in a second. That you, you know, you guys weren't able to compete at the Olympics.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I grew up, like you said, without the Olympic dream, without that exposure to international competition. I was actually asked this question recently, also on a on a Zoom interview, and. As, as a kid growing up, also I was growing up along the coast, not really in the Johannesburg, Pretoria, the large centers of the country where really all of the um, protesting and, mm. and issues were going on. Uh, so I was a little bit sheltered from it. Um, I don't think I grew up that much with the awareness, at least when I was younger, of apartheid. Mm. Um, obviously, we knew there was segregation, but it wasn't really something that we felt like we were exposed to too much where I was growing up and sport mm-hmm. was just the total focus. It was only in the latter part of my career that, or not the latter part of my career, but my high school years where the change began to happen. And it and was a form of integration in the schools towards my, my final year of high school. Um, and I had the privilege of being involved in because of Barcelona and I was head head girl I don't know if you have a prefect system or leadership system in your schools in Australia but we do in South Africa so I was the head leader and I was taken around to all of the schools like the Indian traditionally Indian segregated schools and African and I was given the opportunity to speak to these kids and obviously a bit about the Olympics but also about you know trying to promote the integration and coming Mm. to our schools and stuff so unbeknown to me, that was laying a really good foundation for what I would do later on in life. But um, it was only really after I'd moved to the States and you, you hear about, from the international news, you get a different perspective on what's happening in South Africa. Um, and I think that's where the awareness really uh, kind of crept up on me.
0: Talk to me about that moment, making your first Olympics. I think you were 18, was it, at the time? Or maybe yes. 17, 70, turning 18. 17, there you go. I yeah. thought I knew I'd be yeah. either right on it or just under it. Um, but yeah. you were part of a very special group of, obviously, South African athletes that were getting an opportunity mm-hmm. to do something that others hadn't been able to do for, what would you say, 32 years. Yeah, So, 32. you know, were, were you able to appreciate that moment? Because you were still young. So, for me, at 17... I wouldn't know anything that wasn't happening just in my own little bubble. Were you able to appreciate what you guys were actually able to do?
2: You know, in the run-up, when the rumors began that we'd be going to the Barcelona Olympic Games, I was in my final year of high school. um, And my focus was a little more on the academic side. So... When I went into our trials, uh, long story short, I ended up swimming the fastest times. But I did the 200 in the in the B final because I cruised into the A I I cruised out of the A final. I went mm-hmm. so slow in the morning, uh, thinking I'm defending champ, I could afford to do that. And then in, in the 100 breast, I went the fastest in the morning. So because of my times, I was selected for the team. But I didn't win any event, mm-hmm. you know. So there were two other girls who were the winners in the 100 and 200 respectively. So. Uh, they were a little bit upset, and the whole time in the in the lead up to us leaving to the Olympics, there was a lot of stuff in the media saying I'd be dropped from the team, and they one of them would be, you know, put into the team. So pre- preparation wasn't the greatest, and I think my mindset wasn't so good, and I just wanted to get done with things. Um, traditionally, at that stage, South African girls specifically would would normally retire at the age of eighteen when they're done with high school because there really doesn't there wasn't many prospects for us to go yeah. on, you know. Um, So going to Barcelona, I think I always tell the story of, um, you know, we were really so green, so to speak, that we didn't know what to expect. One of the biggest shocks for me was the dope testing. Mm. Um, The idea that someone has to witness you giving your sample. I remember when the nurse told me she has to watch, I said, what kind of a pervert are you? (laughs) Um, And I said, you can keep, you know, you can keep the Olympics. I don't have to go if this is what it's about. You know, as though that's not bad enough. We get into the village and they tell us we have to go for a gender verification test. You know, once again, I was like a bit freaked out. And then obviously it's only taking epithelial cheek cells and checking for the, you know, XY chromosome. But all of that stuff left me in a space where I was thinking, you know, what is this all about? I was so disillusioned and in, in a way very disappointed in the fact that we have to go to these extreme lengths because people are willing to do anything for what they perceive as success, which would be the medals or the times. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's just, sports is a microcosm of life. I think, mm. especially in South Africa today, it's, that's, that attitude is so rife. Um, unfortunately, that is the way it is.
0: Hmm. Well, obviously Barcelona in 1992. And we're talking about now this was your first Olympic experience and you're 17. What did those games teach you that you used four years later? Obviously Atlanta, we know what you did and we'll get to that soon. Cause okay. obviously it was f- phenomenal, but obviously you've, you learned some lessons through, through Barcelona and that experience.
2: Okay. One of the things I learned in Barcelona at the age of 17, having swum now and having been the south african champion it was the first time i'd ever heard of drills Mm -hmm. and i was told to do the two kick one pull breaststroke drill and i didn't know what the coach (laughs) was talking about that's an honest truth okay i learned that you should not go into the cafeteria and just eat all the time because Mm. you know nobody told us like you aussies are told in terms of your diet you know how you should eat you know eat at the cafeteria in the Olympics, open 24-7 with anything you can think of. And so that's the second lesson I knew going into Atlanta, you know, be a little more disciplined. But on a serious note, I think um, coming off of my performances, which left me in 30, 32nd, 33rd or something like that, I was yeah very, um, yeah, very despondent. And I thought at that stage, it's time to retire from swimming. Um, because, and I realized that when you're in that slump of disappointment, you know, you can't imagine what your future holds for you. I mean, if someone had gone and told me in Barcelona, I'd be swimming in Atlanta in four years time, I would have said, no ways I'm retiring, mm. much less the idea of making a final and never would I have imagined gold medals, um, especially not two. Right. Mm. So I think the the takeaway from that is that, you know, the dips in your career are the opportunities to learn and to change in order to achieve your greatness. But it only comes through keeping on, not, you know, so you have to get through that dip and understand that it doesn't matter if you can't see the goal or the future per se. Um, I never set goals that were way ahead. Um, I know that works for some people, but my goals were never to go to the Olympics or win medals. It was just to keep improving my time. And as I did that step-by-step, eventually I looked back and I thought, wow, I can't believe what happened. Sometimes I feel like I don't know how it happened. Mm. Um, and then I think another big one that I was very conscious of not letting it happen again is the fact that in Barcelona, I was quite overwhelmed by the fact that this is now the Olympics. So, and then obviously I didn't swim my best times and I knew going into Atlanta, despite the fact that I was going in as the world record holder in the hundred, I knew that I can't allow myself to be mentally distracted or in any way affected by the fact that the enormity of the event, you know? So mm. that's where I, I took some deliberate steps to work, you know, on from a visualization point of view on preparing myself mentally in order to go to the games. Well, there's so that no idea. It would just be another meet. I had to go into yeah. the Olympic Games thinking this is just another meet.
0: Yeah. Well, there's no it. doubt that you learned from Barcelona because obviously we talk about you You went over to America and the next four years, you know, you return back to the Olympic arena and you're ready and raring to go in Atlanta. But so I'm interested in those four years, though. I'm always interested mm-hmm. when people have such a, an amazing meet, which is, you know, almost something that they can never touch again. They get close or they might get a little piece of it. But those breakout meets, I'm always interested in sort of what goes into that. Talk to me about mm-hmm. the changes in the program, the changes in mentality the changes that you went through through the next four years
2: i think the biggest change was the fact that i went to the united states and i really encourage young swimmers i know maybe in australia it's a bit different but definitely in south africa although I'm, i'm not popular for saying this i really believe the u.s has a lot to offer not only because of facilities and coaches but probably more so the system that they have in terms of the collegiate system because you are you are put in a position where you're competing at a very, very high level, often against international, uh, you know, swimmers of a very high level. Yeah. And you're doing so almost on a bi-weekly mm. um, period of time. So every second weekend, you're racing really, really fast people. And I think another thing for me personally was going to the States and swimming in yards. I had no mental... Um, block as to or, or ceiling in terms of what I think I needed to swim. You know, I got there and they told me, you're a 102 breaststroker. And I said, oh, okay, I'm a 102 breaststroker. Not knowing that that was a 109 or something like that, which at that stage I was only going a 112, right? Yeah. So I made the drop because everyone else is swimming way faster than that. So it just pulled me along. Mm. And then when I went to, into long course swimming, I saw the drop in my times. So, first of all, going to the states, I think also um not my first semester that was a, a roller coaster and a lot of homesickness and unhappiness and crying in my goggle, and mm. needed to find ways to handle that you know those changes but um from my Second semester onwards, I changed coaches, and I was swimming with Jan Bitterman, who was a former swimmer himself. He he competed for for um, Sweden, and he was at the Barcelona Games himself. So for me, going into a position where I'm being coached by someone that w- that had at that stage done much better than I had done, that was the first time that I was faced with that. And so I think the respect, obviously, factor was there, and in many ways. I had made some changes just prior to joining him in terms of my stroke and I'd set some goals and I had a plan on how to achieve those goals because in fact, he told me when I first was supposed to go to him, he told me, no, I wouldn't handle these workouts. You know, I should go and swim with the sprint freestyle girls. And I said, but I've got a goal and I've got a plan and this is how I'm going to do it. And either you can help me or someone else can help me. And, and then He said, if you give 100%, I give 100%. So we began working together. As it turned out, the other two breaststrokers at that stage working with him were two Swedish breaststrokers, males. They got injured. And so for a whole semester, so that's about four months, I was the only swimmer that Jan was coaching. So in a way, we grew together. It was his first season as a coach, and I was being exposed to a whole different way of training. Up until that stage, I'd only really been doing five workouts a week of about three K's, but it was all bam, 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 all fast sprint breaststroke and Mm. you know, no drills. Like I said, I didn't know what that was. So it was, it was the I'd say the the my the load I was doing in terms of training. Um I'd never been exposed to much dry land training other than just playing other sport. So I was getting into the gym for the first time and learning how to do that and plyometrics. So it was a combination of all of that. And it took some time for my body, I think, to adjust and get used to it. And then, of course, I think a big, big turning point in my career came with uh, South Africa going to the Commonwealth Games. You know, I got a bronze medal there in the 100. Mm -hmm. And then from there, we went to the world champs. And obviously, the the top swimmer at that stage was Samantha Riley and Mm -hmm. the one to look up to. And um, I had a lot of respect for her. And I, what happened is in the morning of the 100 breaststroke at the World Champs, I, I won my heat and I swam a personal best time. I just dipped under the 110 for the first time and or the second time maybe off to Commonwealth. And I was seated second going into the final behind Sam. And there I learned a very valuable lesson because in the morning I had absolutely no idea who I was going to swim against. And to this day, I actually don't know. Uh, no offense to the girls I was racing, but I don't know who they were. I was just swimming my own race. But that evening, you know, as I went in just about to break out from under the water, I caught a glimpse of Sam from the corner of my eye. It wasn't a deliberate look. I just caught a glimpse. And with that, I got distracted and I saw how she was getting further and further ahead. And where I used to count my strokes, I just totally forgot to do that and Mm. totally didn't swim my own race. Long story short, as we know, Sam wins with a world record and I come sixth with a time that's a whole almost second slower than I did in the morning Mm. and uh, you know I would have had the girl who got the bronze was slower than I was in the morning so that was a tough lesson one of those moments once again where I thought it's a good idea to retire from swimming (laughs) and then my mom said to me but you know you can retire and forever wonder what if or you can choose to look at your failure and learn from it Uh, because therein lie the nuggets of truth the things you need to learn in order to catapult you onto tomorrow's successes. And that was exactly two years prior to Atlanta. Mm. So that was a turning point in my career, you know, in hindsight, it was quite prophetic, I suppose. I really think if I'd been more successful in Rome, there's certain things I wouldn't have learned and Atlanta would not have happened. So that failure for those listening who don't like the idea of failure, you know, failure can be your best friend. If you would perceive it in the right way and see it as an opportunity to grow. And it was at that point where I set some um, some goals for myself. And that was that the following two years, every year I would improve by a second. So that meant I'd go 108 the following year. And then in 96, I'd go a 107.5. At the time, Sam's record 107.69. I fully expected Sam would continue to improve her record. So I didn't think I was going for the world record. I was just going for a time.
1: Mm.
2: As it happened each season, I did exactly how I worked the plan and, and – uh, in the heats of the 100 breasts at our Olympic trials, I managed to break Sam's world record. I still thought she'd break it afterwards again. Mm. And that set me up for the preparation for the Atlanta Olympic Games. So I, I think that's a lot of things happened in those four years, but I think that was really the crux of the matter um, changing my stroke, setting the right goals, having a plan, and working that plan.
0: I think another great takeaway there, Penny, for everyone listening is you you were only about 18 when you made that change and you went to the US. So this is an 18 year old Penny Haynes who's never been really in the gym before, who's never really upped her sessions before. Now the volume's upped and all of a sudden you're seeing these changes where at the moment, and I know certainly things are changing a little bit now in the way coaches and, and swimmers and the philosophies and that stuff, but there was definitely a period of time where, you know, if you were 16, 17, you should be doing eight sessions, nine sessions a week. You've got to be in the gym, all these sorts of things. And and I think, yeah, as you said, definitely obviously the learning experience from racing, but something the swimmers and coaches should be taken away from this is there's many ways to skin a cat. And there you are at 18, 17, sorry, going to the Olympics. And you hadn't even touched a weight yet. You haven't even, what were you doing? Probably 30 kilometers a week or something like that. Not, not even that much.
2: I was going, there were some exceptions. I think in the school holidays, we'd go a Saturday morning and here and there, I recall doing some morning sessions, uh, but it wasn't a regular thing. So by and large, let's say between five and seven sessions a week. But most of the time, it was about five a week. Remember, where I grew up also, being at the coast, it's fairly warm, maybe a little bit like Brisbane, I suppose, the Gold Coast. Yep. So we never had any heaters in the pool. So in winter, we would go and do long swims in the ocean because it's warmer mm. and run, swim, run. We didn't really even swim in the, you know, in the proper pool over mm. the winter months until maybe later on in my career. But typically, a workout was something like 200 warm-up, 20-50s um, on a minute, um, free breast, all out just pretty much. And then 10-100s quite fast, freestyle, let's say, or sometimes some breast. And then 40-25s breaststroke and then 200 warm down. So mm-hmm. I was very much accustomed to, when I swam breaststroke, I swam it with intensity, almost as close to race pace as I could. Now, today we're familiar with ultra short race pace training. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that is totally the way to go. I think, you know, I don't know enough about it, but I do think that that kind of philosophy could have worked very well for me. Mm. The, the converse of that or the, or the negative of all of that is that it, I found it very difficult later on in my career to swim the slower sets, the recovery. So there were, I, every season I got overtrained at some point. But my coach and I had a very good understanding. If I said to him, Jan, I'm overtrained, he would believe me because usually he'd have to hold me back a bit. So I felt confident to to really listen to my body and say to him, look, you know, um, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I mean, a good story is a month before we left for the Olympic Games in 96, we were training in Puerto Rico in a 50-meter pool, whereas in Nebraska, I was in a 25-yard pool. And we were supposed to be there for two weeks, just myself, my coach, and another South African girl who was a fellow breaststroker. And after the first week, I felt like this long course, I wasn't handling it. I was just breaking, my stroke was breaking down and I was very unhappy and I was very prayerful about it. And I felt like in my heart, I need to go back to Nebraska and swim in the 25 yard pool on my own. Mm -hmm. And so when I told my coach this, I said, I'm going back to Lincoln. I'm going to swim on my own. And actually at that point in time, they were busy fixing the 25 yards. So the only pool available was a 15 yard diving well. And I said, I'm going to go and swim there for a week. And he said, no, we're not going. And I said, you're right, we're not going. I'm going, you're not going. And I went back. And this is a month before Atlanta Olympics. I mean, it sounds absolutely crazy.
1: Mm.
2: But in my gut, I just knew I have to do something different. And I trusted my gut. As it turned out, I was spot on in the Olympics and the other girl was a bit overtrained or she overshot her taper. So I think the, the other side of this is as you grow older and you become supposedly wiser, you also become a little more obedient and you think you can handle more. And I should have listened to my gut in in 2000, but I didn't. I thought, I kept telling myself, I can push through this. I can push through this. So when I should have backed off, I didn't. And uh, as we know, the season wasn't the greatest.
0: You're absolutely right in terms of, you know, listening to your body and and understanding how you go. And I obviously uh, am nowhere near um, the the swimmer that you were or someone else that, that sort of resonates with, I heard a story from Grant Hackett, which was always his Olympic years were always some of his hardest because he always kept training when he was supposed to be recovering. He'd go harder because he thought, well, no, I've got to keep going because my competitors will be, you know, if they're having a recovery, well, I'm going to keep going. (laughs) I'm going to get that extra yard. So you're absolutely right in terms of just listening to your body and and take it sometimes that little step back and recovering is the best thing for you
2: you got to wonder now with the what happened this year the season that so many swimmers were forced well everybody was forced to take some time off i'm seeing i don't know if it's true for the senior successful top level swimmers but definitely for age groupers that i'm seeing um they've come back after two months of being out of the water some of them three months and they they're thinking they're just going to be terrible and they're swimming close to their pbs Mm. And, you know, this forced break, both mentally and more importantly, physiologically, might just turn out to be the best thing ever.
0: I, mean, I, I Again, I'm agreeing with you. I'm agreeing with you, everything you say. But I, um, I don't think any of the companies would be happy hearing me say this. But I've, I've started thinking myself, like, what are we doing? Have we got this all the wrong way? I, similar to you, we, we did a time trial the other day and kids were doing PBs. And I was like, some of these kids, we'd only been back in for four weeks. Now, granted, we weren't doing 200s and 400s, we were doing short, fast sprints, but they were fast, they were strong because they'd grown and and they'd recovered and the older kids had yeah. recovered, the younger kids had grown. So I agree with you. I think if anything, you know, whether that's the right or the wrong way, it's, it's made us think about what we're doing and are we doing it the right way? And is yeah. there a different way to do it for, for sure? Yeah, no,
2: definitely. I do think in terms of, um, that, the way that swimming is changing internationally now, especially at the elite level with something like the ISL, if those swimmers want to be successful and maximize opportunities they have with ISL, the way they train is definitely going to have to change. Mm. And But I think with that, we're going to see some real interesting performances
0: going forward. Absolutely. Now let, let's get stuck into 1996 Atlanta Olympics. Massive meet for you in terms of your career. First woman, a woman, sorry, to win the double in the hundred and the two hundred. I actually think you were the first breaststroker ever. Is that right? I don't think it was men all well I think you were the first breaststroker ever win the double.
2: I don't know. I'll have to go check that. I think um, so. I, I know as I know in the woman. Um, often people say in the same Olympics, but it wasn't even in the same Olympics. It was. If you look at all of them, nobody's won the 100 and the 200, even if it was yeah. consecutive Olympics or whatever. But I must say I never knew that statistic when I was at the Olympics. Mm. You know, um, as far as the only one, the first ever, I don't know about the men. I, obviously, after me was Kitajima, who was awesome. Yeah. He did it in, in 2004 and 2008. Uh, but, but if you think about the double, what's kind of, funny to me is people have asked me you know what was my preparation for the 200 going into Atlanta and I said there was absolutely no preparation at least not mentally in my mind I mean I did the normal training Um, I was totally focused on the 100 especially given my performances at our trials and a week before we went into the village you know we were at our holding camp and we were training at Auburn University and I'd had a good workout and my coach came to me and said now what's the plan for the 200 and I said to him I don't know (laughs) <laughs> and he said, well, what do you want to do? So I said, well, I don't know. Do you think maybe I can get into I, I can get into the final? I think maybe I can get sneak in for a medal, but I don't know. And um, I went and sat one side and I thought to myself, I'm in the best shape I've ever been in my life at that stage and I may never have another opportunity, so I better actually take this 200 seriously as well. Lucky for me, the 200 was the second race. I think if it, if it had been the first race, I don't think it would have been the same result just because of – my mental approach and my confidence. Mm. But after the hundred, I knew I had the speed and I didn't know how to swim at 200 at that stage. The only way I ever knew to swim is go all out and hope you don't die, which is actually what I did in the final. I knew I had the speed. So I went all out from the start as fast as well, quite fast. And then as you know, I died um, (laughs) towards the end of the race. Lucky for me, uh, no one caught me before the, before I got to the wall. So, um, it's only later on in my career I think in 99 where I actually learned to pace the race and then that's where the world records came so
0: mm. What were the emotions like after that? Because obviously, given what you'd been through, the ups and the downs, the, the times where you're questioning yourself, that must have been a pretty spe- Obviously, this is something only a select few people in the history of the world are going to be able to really understand when you say these things. But for me, who's a, a fan just sitting at home watching you, and obviously, in terms of Atlanta as an Aussie, I, we probably think about Kieran Perkins in the 1500. But certainly for me, I, I remember watching you as well. 'cause I loved breaststroke. I was, I was an avid breaststroker fan. I just wished I could be a lot faster than I was. But you know, what was the emotions of, you know, after you finished and after you, you know, you knew what you'd achieved, it must have been a pretty special feeling for you.
2: I think my answer is not what people expect. First of all, again, the goal is always to swim my personal best time. So in the morning of the 100 Breast, I knew when I, when I went into the games, I would swim my fastest time. I just mm. I didn't know if anyone else would swim faster. I can't control that, yep. which my expectation was that Sam and maybe even Amanda would swim faster um, than the current record, right? So I knew in the morning I'd set the world record, and I was very happy with that. Going into the final, though, that obviously my goal was to swim faster. I never swam faster. I happened to win the race, but I swam slightly slower. So there were mixed emotions. I was very relieved that I'd won the race, but a little bit like I'm an analyst. So the whole time I'm thinking about how could I not have swum faster, you know? Mm-hmm. So now the medal presentation comes. So I'm standing behind the blocks, and where, where you are positioned as an athlete, you can't – there's a bit of an echo and they start speaking French and people are applauding and, you know, and so I step up on the podium, but they haven't even called my name yet. <laughs> yes. so, so I'm standing there feeling like an idiot. Um, and then of course they award Amanda and Sam. And now the anthem starts playing, the flag goes up and I start thinking, that this doesn't, you know, this anthem sounds different. Okay. And I found out a couple of years ago, what actually happened is they had the wrong version somehow of the South African Anthem and they contacted the radio station in South Africa and they played the anthem over the telephone. And that was apparently the first time it ever happened as well. I must be honest, I didn't know the words to the anthem because it obviously had changed and I'd Mm. been in the States. And I'm standing there thinking, should I be crying? I should feel something. But the only emotion I felt or the predominant thought in my mind, and and this is the honest truth, is that I was standing there thinking, I feel bad for Sam because I honestly thought she would either win or if not win, she'd be second. Mm. Um, And I knew that obviously her run up and preparation for Atlanta was not without its own um, challenges. And so, yeah, my thinking during the hundred presentation was very mixed emotions. Um, By the time the 200 came, I obviously knew the drill a little bit more. So I think I enjoyed the moment more. Um, But still today, as I look back, uh, and i see how other athletes are enjoying the moment when they get the medal and they walk around um, the pool you know they take their time about it whereas i felt very pressured with uh the tv and the guys the ushers saying move along move along i was just obedient moving along so i didn't really savor the moment as much as i i think i should have
1: oh,
2: of a- experience
0: <laughs> yeah well, obviously, and it's it's different for everyone, right? So I, I think yeah. it's it's always good to hear those sort of stories in a way because it makes you more real in terms of you know what you're going through. I, I think a lot of people would probably go through those things and maybe sometimes they don't even tell those stories. They just give the cookie cutter. Oh, it was great. It was great to be up there, but I think it, you know, it makes you more real in terms of um, feeling free to, to give those stories, but you broke the 50 yeah. meter world record during your career. Also, what made you so good? Do you think at being able to dominate an entire stroke the way you did from 50 to hundred? Because we know these days that the 50 meter race is very different from a 200, we we know that you know a fifty meter sprinter almost is is in its own you know niche at, at times like they're they're just a completely different athlete to some of the two hundred yeah. swimmers. What do you think made you able to 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 go from the fifty to the two hundred and and you know dominate the way you did during your career?
2: Um, I think the the background I had from a young age, always swimming breaststroke with a high intensity. Um, helped. I'm definitely more a 100 swimmer by far than a 200 swimmer. Um, and so therefore, I think being in the middle of those two distances, it, it served me well. I had a lot of upfront speed. Um, often people say to me, the stroke between a 100 and a 200 is two different strokes. I never saw it that way. Mm-hmm. Yes, the timing in terms of you're going to reach into your stroke a little bit more in the 200 um, is different, but I think I I think I swam the same stroke across all three dis- um, distances. Um, other than that, I really I don't know. I look back on my career, and so I don't have answers for some of the things. You know, even after the 200, some people ask, well, what did you feel in the you know after the 200 in Atlanta?" And the honest thought was. Why me? Why did God let me win the 100 and the 200 and what now, you know? Mm. If, if this has been allowed, then what's the responsibility that goes with it? And so too, as I, as I grow older, I look back on my career, I don't know how the 50 happened. The story behind the first 50 is that I was actually in the middle of a 100-meter race. My coach had told me the previous Wednesday that I should try for the 50 and I said, no, I still want to try and swim a really good 100. And so I waited till the Friday and then in the, in the race, the Friday I went all out and happened to break the 50 world record on the way to a 100 meter swim. Mm. And so obviously then the next time I tried it being just a straightforward 50, it was easier. Um, I don't know if it was a mindset. Uh, I, I really don't have the answers.
0: Well, I think it was definitely a period of time as well because we know now in terms of race plans and things like that, You know, you just blew my mind before when you said you won Olympic gold medal in the 200 and you really didn't have a race plan other than dive in and and away you go. I mean, that, I mean, can be simplified to today. I think at times we do overcomplicate things today because we've got certain stroke rates and certain stroke counts and all these things. And some kids just need to, depending on who it is, because some are very um, analytical about what they need to know. And, but some Mm -hmm. to your point, I think just need to get in and and race and maybe we, we overcomplicate things.
2: Exactly. I think um, I think if you look at the current swimmers, also, I think somebody that's there's two swimmers that have been I've always thought would maybe do all three or at least the double. And the one was well, actually three. I suppose the first I thought was Liesel Jones.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Then I thought Sony maybe, but I knew she could never do a fifty. I think one that's pretty good across the three distances is over, mm-hmm.
1: And
2: then now we've got Lily King, who suddenly seems to be able to swim a 200 quite well. I don't know. The Americans seem to think she's going to do the double. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Um, but I think today the people are training more specifically towards a certain discipline. So you get a 50 and 100 swimmer. They tend to be the same. Now and then you get 100, 200 successful. Um, but it, I think they're training, the 100 and the 50, they're training in a similar way. and the 200, the training is different. I think what helped me again is the fact that I never, I've never, and I still don't believe one should train breaststroke at, at an easy pace. So you shouldn't swim a slow breaststroke and you shouldn't sw- swim a tired breaststroke because that's not the stroke you're going to be racing. Mm-hmm. So everything, anytime I swam breaststroke, it was almost all out. go as hard as I could. And I was trying to keep that same intensity that I would if I was racing. And then, um, so most of my training also, even when I was successful in the 200, the main set that season, when I had that breakthrough was, I thought I'm training for the hundred. I was doing 30 fifties on a minute long course and going quite, quite close to, let's say the second 50 of my hundred
1: yep.
2: at kind of pace. As it turns out, those repeat fifties, by the time I swam the 200, I was like, ah, oh, it's only four <laughs> fifty. you know? And then the breakthrough came. Whereas a lot of 200 swimmers and even 100 swimmers, they'll go and do a lot of 200s up and down. Whenever I did that, I got overtrained yeah. and never paid off in my season. So I just think, again, we may see some changes. I suspect people like Lily King are doing the shorter, faster things. And I think that's going to, we'll see what happens in mm. the 200.
0: Who are some of your favorite competitors to race against?
2: I think top of the list because it just was the era we swam in would be Samantha Riley. Mm-hmm. Um, other than Sam, there were some that would come and go. Um, hmm. Liesl Jones came. Well, actually Liesl Jones, the first time I noticed her was at my last, at the last Olympics. So she was yeah. after me. Um, I think the Aussies were actually the strongest competitors that time, the rivals. Mm. So, There were others like, I think Brooke Hansen was just kind of getting into it. Yeah. Um, I can't remember everybody's names now. As far as Americans go, uh, there was Christy Cole. Um, At one stage, definitely at the collegiate level, there was... um, Hmm. Quance? I can't remember her first name now. But it's... Yeah, I could tell you who I didn't like. Yeah. <laughs> but I shouldn't say, it. I shouldn't say it. It's not an Aussie. I can tell you that yeah, it's an yeah. American. Yeah. But uh no, I had a lot of respect for the for the fellow competitors whom I perceived to be humble. Mm. Uh to that to me that was important. When I felt they were they did not show good sportsmanship, I would lose respect and so you know
0: Well, I'm glad you say that about the Aussies because it is something I think we do try to pride ourselves on is that, you know, we probably don't over we don't showboat too much when we do win and we're mm-hmm. probably too humble when you know we we do we probably sometimes should be celebrating a little bit more. And actually one thing our media does, which I, I don't really like is anyone that does sort of show a bit of uh exuberance with a win, we tend to shoot them down very quickly and say get back in your spot and you know be humble and quiet about it. So uh, no I'm glad yeah. you you said that. In terms of competitors Since you've retired, clearly you keep a close eye on the breaststroke scene because you mentioned a few names just before. Are there any swimmers that you wished you could have raced? Did you ever watch them and go, geez, I wish I could have just had a crack in there against those guys? That would have been a good race against those girls.
2: You know, obviously it's very difficult to measure things because the way they train, the swimsuits, the fact that there's now a fly kick off of the walls all of those elements add to the fact Mm -hmm. the starting blocks um add to the fact that the world records have been dropping um i could say it would have been cool to race any of them but not not the swimmer i was back then i Mm -hmm. would hope then i would keep up with the way the trends are i know without a doubt now if i train certain ways now as as i analyze things and i and i do one-on-one coaching and I look at technique, there's so many obvious things that I'm teaching that I never even thought of as a swimmer. So I have no doubt if I had known these things then and trained in that way, I would have swum faster, but it is what it is. I'm not sorry. I swam in the era in which I competed. I can't Mm. think of a, a greater rival that I would have wanted to have other than Sam. Mm. Um, I think that Liesl Jones, you know, would have been interesting for maybe the next four years if I was able to, like I say, also incorporate the new kind of ways of training and and the changes that were allowed within the stroke. Um, So that might have been an interesting race. I haven't really thought about it much. Um, I just know Chad LeClos' dad asked me, you know, a year or two ago, maybe even more recently, am I not sorry I'm not swimming in this era, you know, where they have all these opportunities with ISL and, and, you know, the financial opportunities. And while all of that is nice, I was very fortunate to swim in the era where Nelson Mandela was the president in South Africa. Mm. At the time that I swam, I think the performances meant more to our nation than they do now because it was just when we were being birthed as a, as a new nation. So under Nelson Mandela, and he was just a, a very unique president. There's so many stories, but, um, so that is a, a very special honor that I don't think, you know, it's very unique and not many people were exposed to that. So I feel really blessed that I swam when I swam.
0: Well, mate, the professional that you are, you wouldn't have known this, but you've just led me directly into my next question, which was, nelson mandela one of the most influential figures of all time there's no doubt did you have any dealings with him during your career he's known for obviously his words of wisdom his intelligence did he impart any of that in the interviews powerful words onto you what lessons did you learn
2: um i had many encounters with nelson mandela uh the first actually the first one i didn't think much of it i was at some awards evening and i i just said hello but then after i broke the world record the first time they flew me down to cape town to the presidential home to meet with him and so i had a one-on-one private meeting with him first and then we went out in front of the public and he introduced me and you know he was it was a special moment but i think the real highlights came later on in my career Um, after we returned, some of the moments I really remember the wow moments was after we returned from the Olympic games in 96, um, we were in Pretoria at the parliament buildings and we were actually, it was at his residence and we were dedicating the medals to the nation, you know, and doing some speeches. Myself, Jezai Guani, who won the marathon, Marion Creel who won the 50, I mean, sorry, the 100 back bronze. And then Ezekiel Sepeng who won the 800 track. So it was four of us. And after that, we went into a private room with Mandela. We call him Madiba. And um, as we were speaking, he was busy telling us that, you know, our role as leadership and, and as, you know, as role models, how we should behave and, and that the responsibility, etc. And then some, one of the caterers brought a plate of eats and set it down, you know, something for us to eat. And he got up before any of us could do anything and he served us. And I remember thinking, this is crazy. I mean, not only is he the president and the great Nelson Mandela, but to me, he's, he's an elder as well. You know, mm-hmm. he should not be serving us. So that was, that was a big moment. Another moment was there was a presidential sports awards and I was seated at what I assumed was the main table because the deputy president was there and there was, the other medalists were there. And I saw the seat next to me was open. And I still thought to myself, who would not show up to this <laughs> event, you know? Next minute, everybody stands to their feet and there's this hush and it's about 500 people. And in comes Nelson Mandela. And he had the tendency, he would sort of stop and shake every person's hand, not everybody. But I mean, even my business partner, Zelda, she was in event management. They did those banquets. They were the Mm. eventing company that did those banquets. And she said that even behind the scenes, Nelson Mandela would have the waiters and all of the staff that worked on the event line up and he would go and greet each one individually. And shake their hands that's just how he was so anyway he makes his way into the room and eventually he comes and he takes the seat next to me i couldn't <laughs> believe it so now i'm seated next to nelson mandela so the evening begins and there's a very well-known south african um musician Chaka Chako, who was singing and obviously nelson mandela enjoyed her music because he was you know really enjoying it next minute he kind of slaps me on the back and he says penny let's dance so we had to get up and he's doing the Mandela job and I'm like not, not sure how to dance and 500 people are watching us. They're all seated watching us. And then I think something that, well, there's two other unique moments that blew my mind. Um, I'd swum fairly poorly uh, for a year or so after Atlanta and then finally in 99, as you know, it was a great year and I, but I was slowly getting back to form in the beginning and so it was our our uh, national championships and I'd won the 200 and I'd won with a time that was, I think the first time I went a a 225 again and I was standing outside the pool speaking with some kids and, and someone came to me and said, listen, uh, the president wants to speak to you. And I said, I thought the swimming president. So I said, okay, I'll be there just now. She said that was Zelda. And she said, no, no, no. The, uh, the state president Nelson Mandela wants to speak to you. So I'm like, okay. So I go to the office answering the phone. I think it's a prank yeah Answer the phone he comes on the phone and he says no he just watched the race on tv he he's very happy to see i'm back on form i mean who knows that half the people at the pool didn't know that i was back on form you Mm. know um that was what was unique about him if i think of other presidents who served after happened and and what they should say it wasn't that they necessarily took a personal interest and then when i broke those four world records in Los Angeles in a row. It happened on the 17th and then the 18th, 18th of July is his birthday. So afterwards I got back to Canada and one night in the middle of the evening, the phone rings and I'm thinking who phones me in the middle of the night, you know, mm-hmm. I answer the phone and it's Nelson Mandela. And he says, no, he just wants to say well done on those world records mm-hmm. that he saw. And, you know, also thank you for breaking world records on his birthday. And then I still said to him, congratulations on his, on his uh, marriage. He just married grosso Michelle.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then I said to him, because he had just finished up his term as president, I said to him, what is it like not to be president anymore? And he said, it's like walking out of a jail cell for the second time. So that was amazing. There were a few other encounters afterwards, but, you know, after my career, it wasn't quite the same anymore. So...
0: Very special time. Yeah, absolutely. Those are great stories. And I think one thing that stuck, it stuck out to me with all of those was him paying attention to a lot of the things you were doing. And it's obviously yeah. famously in, in the that Invictus movie, which, um, you know, was probably, I've spoken to a fair few South African friends of mine. They do say it was sensationalized quite a bit, that movie. But the one thing that sticks out to me was how closely he paid attention to what, you know, the rugby team were doing and all that stuff. And it just... Blows my mind that um, someone who's influential and as powerful as he was, you know, would be watching. And I'm sure for you to get those phone calls from, yeah, from Nelson it. to go, you know, what's he doing keeping an eye on what I'm doing?
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Mate, no, um, cool. by the time this chat comes out, it's going to be the 20th anniversary of the Sydney 2000 Olympics which uh, okay. is, is, is a, you know, a milestone obviously for, for not just the Olympic Games, but obviously Sydney. Um, and obviously we're probably a little bit biased here, but I think it's still thought of as, as one of the best games, the greatest games ever. Before we get to the pool and, and what you remember about that, because we've already touched on that and I, I know sort of your, your feelings towards your results there, but what okay. sort of sticks okay. out to you? outside of the pool, outside of the competition, with the Athletes Village, with the facilities, with the atmosphere? I know something that was really big in 2000 was the uh, volunteers. I know a lot of the volunteers were getting high praise in, in Australia. What sticks out to you most about your trip over here?
2: You know, I think Australia was the country that loved, in my perception anyway, in my career, the country that loved swimming more than any other. You know, and, and in a way, it felt to me, I wouldn't say like home, but it, it felt in terms of swimming, I felt very comfortable there because I felt like I received so much um, love and respect the previous year specifically. So the volunteers were great. I think around for us as swimmers, everything was so professional. Um, awesome pool, I think one of the best in the world. Obviously, I broke the first world record in that pool, so that's why. <laughs> no, I'm joking. But um, I think for me, the village definitely was a step up from what we had in Atlanta. It was really, it was really well. I think the layout was good, and and the facilities were great. Uh, for me, if I compare Sydney and Atlanta, the one good thing about Atlanta was the, where we were living, the village was, was right back to back with a pool. So we didn't have to deal with transport. So for yeah. me, I took that for granted. And when I got to Sydney, I felt, oh, hell, suddenly I have to walk to the bus and I have to get the bus, all of that, which I just didn't even think about beforehand. Um, for us as South Africans, we had the hospitality area down at the harbor, at the Daintree, um, and so that was a highlight. We I remember after the, the Games, after all the competition, that was a really nice place to hang out. Um, for me, I think, like I say, being in Australia made it special. And then one of the things that was quite special to me personally was having had a little bit of a disappointing Olympic Games, um, it meant quite a lot to me knowing that Sam also had her disappointments and didn't make the Sydney game. She interviewed me for, I can't remember what TV station, but um, it, it, it was significant to me that the person that was my biggest rival, it felt to me was the one person that really understood where I was at and what I was feeling at that point in time. So that also was, I think, quite special.
0: Well, let's get into it. Talk to me about your results from the pool there. We know you got bronze in the 100 breaststroke, just behind Megan Kwan, our very own Liesl Jones. I think Liesl was 14. Liesl Liesl was
2: great, and you can deduct what I feel since I don't say anything about Megan. Um, Liesl Liesl, Liesl was humble. Yeah. And Megan The Sydney Games, like I say, 2000 was a year that was. There were things that I made dumb choices. I tried some new things like sleeping in an altitude tent and still training hard, which was absolutely, now we know, the wrong thing to do. Um, I had a teammate who passed away. I got a little bit too involved in the week that she was still in ICU. Her parents kind of dragged me into it. The team was away. I was the only one in Calgary. I really thought she's going to pull through. And as it turns out, you know, got to the point where her parents asked me, do you think we should switch the machine off? You know? Mm. So I didn't think any of it would affect me. And it's not an excuse for my performances, but um, I can't deny the fact that afterwards, I mean, after the funeral, I skipped the world short course, whereas I would have gone, but the parents asked me if I could speak at her memorial. So I skipped the world short course. And afterwards on the way home, I wasn't, Like I was on the same flight as somebody, a friend of hers, when he got off the flight and we said goodbye, it wasn't even five minutes and I started feeling ill, you know, throwing up. So subconsciously, I think all of this, it was the first time I'd ever seen anyone pass away. I was in the room when they switched the machines off. So, Mm. And then I continued training hard because I didn't think it affected me. But emotionally, I wasn't recovering the same way I had in 99. So I was doing the same workload, even a little bit more, but I wasn't recovering properly. On top of that, I made decisions then obviously based out of a bit of a panicked state, which it turns out was also not the right thing. I didn't listen to my gut and take the time to recover like I would have done in 96. I was silently, subconsciously arrogant enough in 96 to say, I know best. You know, in 2000, I'm a little more obedient and um, I do everything I'm told to do and I don't listen to my gut on top of all of that, it wasn't because it was an easier time. I read in the media. Now also prior to 96, I didn't bother about the media. I was mm. in my own la world, just swimming. Now in 2000, someone brought to my attention in the media that there was an article where Megan Kwan apparently said she had a photo of me on the back of her door and she would throw darts at it. Now usually <laughs> I would have just laughed at that, which I did, but it yeah. stuck in my mind. Mm. And for that, I actually lost respect. Yeah. So when it came to the race, I can't say I wasn't focused. I was focused on trying to swim my best, but there was also a little bit of a, a um, maybe more of a, a sense of rivalry that I, you know, mm-hmm. against this person that I had felt before in, a, in any other races. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one thing that I only thought about, honestly, about two years ago, I was along with Susie O'Neill and there were some others. We were part of the speedo team that were, um, testing and developing the new uh i can't remember what they called it now shark skin Mm -hmm. but those long suits and the jammers, you know so so i mean i i know when i tested that suit on a 50 meters i was faster. but now going into sydney i felt like my legs were not recovering and what i should have done is worn that suit in the heat to see what it's like But I decided because my legs were tired, I didn't know if the compression would make it worse. So I chose not to swim in that suit at all. Despite the fact that myself and Susie and those, we actually had custom-made suits. We weren't even the general sizes. I had like the the best suit there was, but I chose not to race in it. And then about two years ago, it dawned on me, I never swam in that suit and everybody else swam in that suit. So the what if question came up, you know? Mm. But if I look at the race in the 100, I went out way faster than any other race. It was faster than my split in the world record the previous year. And I just didn't have it to come back. The gas was gone. So maybe I should have paced the race better. The outcome may have been different, but I felt on the day I swam the best race I could given the circumstances. And so I was satisfied with the position. If I think back today on regrets, I regret some of the decisions I made. But I don't regret the outcome because I feel it, it was an opportunity for me also to, as much as I've been a winner on the highest stage, I, I also experienced a setback and it gave me an opportunity to choose how I would deal with that. And I mm. hope in the eyes of the world that I dealt with it in a way that was a good example as opposed to not. Um, As for the 200, after the 100, my coach said to me, scratch from the 200. You know, this is just terrible. There's something wrong. And I wanted to scratch, but I was prayerful about it. And and from a faith perspective, I felt like God was saying I need to swim. So Mm. to me, that was a faith journey to kind of be obedient. Because I actually journaled it, but I felt the night before, like I was being asked, will you swim the 200 even if it means you won't go beyond the semifinal? Will you do it if I ask you to? Yeah, And so for me, I felt, okay, I've, will I do it? Yes, I will. And as it turns out, I, I didn't quite think I wouldn't make it to the semi. I thought I'd at least make the semi, but I didn't. So, uh, and that was the very last race I ever swam. I got out the pool, walked across the pool deck, and that was the last time. Um, in, if you were to ask me what regrets do I have in my career? For a time, I think I dealt with a sense of shame that I didn't even recognize, but because of the way the South African media reacted to it. So I felt embarrassed subconsciously at the fact that I got a bronze, Mm. which is ridiculous if you think about it. But the biggest regret, I think, is also a what-if question. In 99, I had that amazing season. And then coming off of Pampax, I came home and then swam short course, which I didn't swim often, and I broke the world record in the 100. And then um, a week later, I broke the world record again in the 100 and time trialed the 50 within half an hour broke that record The following day was the 200 breast and I decided this has been 11 weeks of competition I'm tired, you know, I'm going the world short course next year I'll do the breaststroke then and Mm -hmm. I'll do the 200 in in the following year And so I chose not to swim the 200 and I went on holiday As we know the following year didn't happen Mm -hmm. and so that's the one record I never had um, which I kind of think I could have had had us won the race that day or the following day. And I think the lesson in that is to the younger listeners is that never wait until tomorrow. We take it for granted that we'll be around the following year or next week or the next race, but you don't know that. And so every single race and every single opportunity is something that we should take and and make the best of it.
0: 100%. Now, often athletes struggle with transitioning from, from, you know, being an athlete and being a high elite athlete, which, which you were into everyday life that, that, you know, transition isn't easy. And I I spoke to Susie about this not long ago in terms of as an athlete at times, it can be all consuming. It can be quite selfish, in in a way because everything has to be around you and everything has to be around how you perform and how you get ready for it and all that sort of stuff. And all of a sudden you're in everyday life and, you know, your family want to see you and your friends want to see you and all these things. And you've got to start to, you know, you know, taper to everyone else around you. How, How did you deal with, with life after swimming? Was it something that you got into quite easily and you actually enjoyed sort of being away from it all? Or did you struggle for a little bit?
2: I struggled. Um, but I think it, it, I never recognized that it was necessarily the retirement aspect because now I remember I was based in the States and then later Canada throughout my latter part of my career. So after Atlanta and the fame, um, I escaped that for the majority of, of each season. Mm-hmm. So when I eventually retired and I moved back home, suddenly I had to deal with the fact that people recognized me and I was never comfortable with that. So I became a bit of a hermit. So that was uncomfortable. The second thing is my mother passed away five months, well, sort of, sort of in May of 2001. So it was, you know, a couple of months after I retired. And I never dealt with her passing, I think, immediately, because to me it was easy to, say, to imagine it like I was overseas for eight months of the year and I don't see her. You know? So I never really emotionally dealt with that. South Africa, as you know, there's always all of, all of uh, in the news, all of the issues around safety. And having been abroad where I felt safe, coming back home, suddenly I had to deal with the mental aspect of feeling like, you know, am I okay? I would wake up at night and check the doors. You know, it, it almost became, <laughs> I don't know if I was obsessive compulsive, but yeah. this, this subconscious awareness of, of safety being an issue was, that retiring I didn't realize and I think a lot of athletes possibly don't realize this that you know as a as an elite athlete the way we train and then that excitement around competition at that high level we produce an abnormal amount of serotonin and dopamine so when you abruptly stop that then your body doesn't produce it anymore and in a way someone explained it to me this way that in a way it's like coming off of drugs Mm. So, from a chemical perspective, I think there 's also an aspect that we need to look at when it comes to elite sport then that 's aside from the fact that I think a lot of elite athletes also suffer from um, not just circumstantial depression because we all go through that. We go through the olympics it 's a great high, and then afterwards, when you come off the high, everybody goes through a bit of a slump and there may be some depression at times because of circumstances. But I think there's a lot of athletes who actually deal with clinical depression and anxiety that's undiagnosed because the symptoms of that are so close to the symptoms we show when we're overtrained. So an athlete is moody and it's excused because they're tired. Mm -hmm. Um, an athlete can become aggressive or be anxious. And we think it's because of competition, but then when they retire afterwards, we still display that same behavior. And then suddenly people don't understand what we're going through. And then the other side of the coin is when you are an athlete, like let's say Michael Phelps at the very highest level, and you've performed greater than anyone else. If you are depressed, everybody looks at you and says, but hang on, what's wrong with you? You've got no reason to be upset, Mm. you know, stop being so selfish. Yeah. So there's all these dynamics, I think, that to a greater or lesser degree, all of us, I'm sure Susie would agree, all of us go through that. And then we still deal with the regrets in terms of our career. I mean, Susie won gold, but she didn't win it in her main event. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure she has some issues around that. I had issues around mine. Um, I don't think there's one athlete at the very top when they retire that don't go away thinking, well, possibly there's a few. But I think even a Michael Phelps at the end, we know certainly in London, but maybe even later on, he could have still had a what-if thought. And those yeah. things always kind of nag at you afterwards.
0: I think what's so it interesting... Took, it,
2: took about ten, it took about 10 years for me to kind of get to a yeah. space where I felt <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm not Penny the swimmer anymore and I'm comfortable with who I am and I have mm. peace with what my career was. Um, and I can honestly say now I'm in the happiest place I've ever been. I think
0: what's interesting, Penny, about what you just said then and, you know, just sort of to give, you know, not that you need it, but validation towards what you're saying is definitely Susie, even though we, we sort of danced around it and spoke about it, but we didn't really get into it. There's definitely, and I think she's been on another podcast where she, you know, um, spoke about it as well. There's definitely still to today that little bit of like... Um, I wouldn't say it's anger or aggression, but there's definitely still that frustration when she thinks about that, that race. Um, Speaking to Grant Hackett, I know he looks at his silver medals that he got in his career as disappointments. He actually said he gets disgusted when he, when he, when he looks at them, he actually keeps them in his drawer at work sometimes because he looks at it as if, um, okay, well that I don't want to have that today. So he actually works harder in his, in his daily life because he doesn't want to look at those silver medals. So I think it's a champions mentality. If I'm being honest, nothing that I can really understand, but I'm only doing this based off the research of, of talking to you guys is uh, the champions out there have this different mentality that things do stick with them for a long time after. And it's, it's those, you know, moments that maybe didn't go the way they had planned. And I, I think uh, a lot of people can't understand that. It's, it's only you select few, I think, uh, very special athletes that can understand it.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's different if an athlete, I would like to think in my case, it would be different if I had swum my personal best time yeah. and I end up in any position. Then I know, you know, this is, this is what it is. But I'm not sure of Susie's times, but I suspect she didn't swim her best time. And it's quite possible that, I can't remember, Miss, Missy Hyman won that race. I'm not sure if Missy swam slower than Susie's PB, but certainly in my race, Megan Kwan was almost a second slower than my own PB mm. or half a second, whatever it was. She was way off. And for the next three years, everybody was way off. So that was what made it a bitter pill to swallow. So you say it's not, it's not anger, but I think it's a it's a bit of a sting. That sting Mm. is still there. uh, Maybe not. I don't feel it so much anymore. Uh, Are you
0: sure you just said, you just said uh, that uh, Megan didn't get near your PB. There was still a little bit of sting in that.
2: (laughs) I'm glad she, I'm glad she did it. Never in her career, did she? Um, Liesl was the one to do it. No, I think I don't have an issue with people breaking records and being better than I was. Mm. I have an issue when, when I perceive that their character is not something I can respect yeah. by the same token, I don't want to say the name of the swimmer, but the famous wagging of the finger at a recent Olympic games to me, that's very unfortunate because I don't know the person and maybe she's actually okay. But that behavior to me was not okay. Mm. Um, as much even there's some South African swimmers, uh, the behavior has changed. But for a time, you know, Chad was sitting on the lane rope, beating his chest, and you know, to me, I told him that's that's sad because people are losing respect for you. Mm. And he's since changed. And I think this, like you say, this overt behavior in the water, it's uncalled for. It's I think there's a genuine time when someone wins and it's an absolute surprise, and yeah. and they celebrate at the wall. That's beautiful. But when it becomes the showmanship, I'm personally, I'm a bit disgusted at it. And I think for the younger generation today, you know, it's all about social media. And the more I can put on a show, the more likes I'm going to get. And so unfortunately, the behavior is driven um, by the wrong kind of, uh, you know, I think, motives. And that's where it becomes a little bit unpleasant, unsavory.
0: No, I 100% understand what you're saying. Now, finally, Penny, when I talk about you as an athlete and I mention your name to coaches or to other swimmers or to aspiring athletes, what do you want people to remember you for as an athlete? How do you want to be... What's your legacy that you want to leave in the sport of swimming? It's not always an easy question to answer, but I, I think it's... It's an important one because for me, you guys are legends for me. You guys should be people that are remembered for, for the great work you guys did. How do you want to be remembered?
2: Hmm. I think more, more for the person and the character than for the achievements themselves. I would hope that the example I said as a swimmer is a positive one. Um, as I say, I certainly res- had a great amount of respect for my f- my rival, uh, my fellow rivals, and I hope that I showed that as an athlete. Um, hm. I think I would, on a, on a spiritual note, I would hope I'm remembered for, hopefully, the example I set, or the or the, for my my witness as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. That's about it. If they remember me for being a good breaststroker, then that's cool. Um, You know, sometimes I'm I'm surprised people still remember it all. It's a long time ago.
0: Well, mate, I, I think people should be remembering. I think people should be learning and all the listeners out there, especially the young ones, be you know, get on YouTube and and definitely um, search Penny and, and the races and certainly 1996, but that wasn't just, you, you know, you went on to, to right. achieve so much more than that as well. Um, mate, I want to thank you very much for coming on for a chat. As I said, I stuffed up the time zones and you didn't have to come on again. I know you've got something else to, to get no, to no um, after this. So thank you very, very much it's been my honor and privilege Um, these are moments for me just for everyone listening these are moments I pinch myself and when I hang up from this I'll go and I'll take a moment to be like how did I get lucky enough to sit there and talk to Penny Haynes because you know for me I idolized you guys I had the same moment with Susie and, and it's a pinch myself moment for me so Thank you for, for you know, giving me the privilege to, to sit and chat with you. You're a champion in and out of the pool. You continue to inspire athletes and, and people in the sport today. So thank you very much for your contribution to the sport and thank you very much for coming on Off The Block Swim Podcast.
2: Thank you, Robbie. I appreciate it. Thanks for calling me.
0: Today's episode is proudly powered, as always, by Pro Swim Workouts. So many more brilliant interviews coming your way here on the show. So keep your ears fixed to hear on Off The Block Swimming Podcast on Apple Podcasts. Or on spotify and given that we are being nostalgic this week make sure you head back in our archives and listen to some of the incredible legends we've had a part be a part of the show and get their accounts of the sydney olympic games including michael clem john rooney Grant hackett brett Hawke, ash Callis, daniel kowalski patria thomas and of course the super coach himself mr bob bowman So many incredible interviews to go back and relive, especially, as I said, around their stories of the 2000 Sydney Olympics. Now, until tomorrow, guys, keep smiling, keep hustling, and it's bye for now.